3: So, David Cologne is uh, the editor of More Notes of a Dirty Old Man, the uncollected columns uh, that Charles Bukowski wrote for the LA Free Press and other publications. And this is his third book for uh, City Light Books of the Writings of Bukowski, and he's also. Um, uh, authored uh, a collection of interviews, edited a collection of interviews and encounters with uh, Bukowski and he teaches at Eastern Michigan University. He's here in California after doing a reading at uh, City Lights Bookstore, so he's fresh from San Francisco. And um, I wanted to um, just start off by um, just telling a little story. When, when I was living in Boston I, I noticed that uh, a lot of the bookstores there Uh, kept some books behind the counter and invariably there will be Kerouac, uh, William Burroughs, Philip K. Dick and Charles Bukowski. They, they were always, you could not go to the shelf like you can here and just get them alphabetically, they were behind the counter. And I was curious as to you know if it was a censorship thing or it was trying to keep them away from children or something. And, and they, I asked, one day I asked one of, of the booksellers there and they said, it's invariably the ones that get shoplifted, like we keep them in the back because those are the authors of people Take uh, there's something in those books that makes people want to read them without paying for them. Uh, uh, so <laughs> I wanted to ask you what what is it about this fellowship, this fraternity of writers that 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 seems to resonate even you know long after they they've done their writing and they they seem to belong in this special category outside of somebody like Mailer or Carver, you know.
1: Uh, I think I, I may have read the same article you did about the most uh, frequently stolen books but uh, Bukowski is usually number one I think in those lists. I think there's um, a New York Times article about that or something I read a few a few months ago but I have no idea why they steal Bukowski or maybe, I guess the theory would be they feel empowered, is that what you're saying? Because he's so nihilistic, quote unquote, that they can, uh, I think they just like his books and they want to steal them. I don't think there's any philosophical kind of rationale for it, if that's what you're asking.
3: But uh, at the time, was he aware that he was what we would call now a cult author? Or uh, he was developing a, in a different branch of somebody like you know, Raymond Carver or Norman Mailer who would be of a similar band, but not in that category of special.
1: No, band. I mean, I think by it's interesting because there are three or four recent books on cult fiction and he's included always in them. And I don't know who, who gets, I've often wondered who gets to be in that category. I think Tolkien, Vonnegut, Bukowski, Burroughs, but it, it's actually, I suppose it's sort of the difference between a cult and a religion or, I mean, a, a cult writer, I suppose, is he's, he or she is very popular but uh i'm not quite sure how it's defined really i mean um but yeah he's often put in those in those categories but i don't think he thought of himself that way i don't think that he was aiming to be a cult writer or but um salinger is he a cult writer i don't know what do you guys think <laughs> what is a cult writer but he i've got two british books on cult writing and he's in both of those and uh but
3: yeah. Where did he see himself when he was writing? Like, did he see himself in, in a kind of coterie? Or, or?
1: Well, his influences he always talks about E.E. E. Cummings, uh, early Soroyan, Fonte, Dostoevsky, Turgenev, uh, Gorky, um, Jeff, uh, Robinson Jeffers, um, Nietzsche, Schopenhauer. I think those are the main ones that are always on, this, on the list, right? Um, Céline, right. And Hampson, pardon me. Yeah, I, I think the four horsemen of the Bukowski a- apocalypse are uh, Celine, Hamson, Artaud, and Dostoevsky. I think those are the most important. Th- and they're all they're all European. But in, in terms of American, I would say Soroyan first and Fonte first, both equally important. Early Soroyan. I mean he talks about Daring Young Man and in fact I've I, I been working on another book on Bukowski, and in Barfly, it's interesting in the opening, uh, in the opening of Soroyan's Time of Your Life, Joe meets Mary, who's a fellow drinker at the San Francisco bar, and he, uh, she asks him, "What do you do?" Uh, and he answers, "I drink," and then they have this kind of witty, kind of sophisticated conversation back and forth, very similar to the scene in Barfly when um, Wanda meets uh, Mickey Rourke uh, very similar so i i, I there's a Soroyan th- subliminal thing going all through Sor- uh, Bukowski, uh particularly early soroyan he he didn't like him after the fifties because he thought Soroyan got too kind of um flaccid and but the, the early stuff was really strong strong i think uh, so yeah, Fonte, Soroyan, and then and E. E. Cummings. This typographical play you get a lot in his poems, the imagined, imaginative, innocent quality in E. E. Cummings. Yeah, so those are the American figures, I think.
3: Yeah. Now you mentioned in the book also that he, uh, uh, when he was writing these pieces for for small papers, he didn't feel the weight of having to write for something like the Atlantic Monthly. Or uh, how how does this the stuff in th- in this book compare to? the other canonical Bukowski that, you know, the things that he published as books in his his life, what do you find?
1: Uh, Well, I think these are good or better than the other things because actually he had, it's very odd, he pretty well surrendered all editorial power to editors. I mean, the the notes of a dirty old man was put together by somebody, not himself. And then when City Lights did, Erections, Ejaculations, and Other Tales of Ordinary Madness. uh, I don't think he had anything to do with selecting what was in it. And then, John Martin put together um, uh, South of No North and Hot Water Music, which are both collections of Bukowski's columns, but he's the one who decided what was going to go in there. So, Basically, there was a backlog of hundreds of these Dirty Old Man columns because he he submitted not just stories, but also essays, poetry, cartoons, interviews, and some little aphorisms. That's the other word Linda was asking me. Af- apothems is the fancy word, but aphorisms is the other word uh, to uh, High Times Magazine under the rubric of Dirty Old Man. So what we're talking about is an incredible prolific outpouring of these wonderful columns, which are challenging. I mean, this is where he's interesting too, because this new journalism idea that you get with, um, Mailer and, uh, um, who's that other guy? Mau Mauing, the flat catchers. Yeah. Uh, um, Tom Wolf, right. And, uh, Capote of blurring the lines between fiction and autobiography. Bukowski is doing that all along. And I think he's. Actually, sort of anticipates them uh, because it's often difficult to know what he's doing here. He's writing short stories, but he's submitting them to a paper which is, you know, supposed to be telling you the truth about life. (laughs) And so there's a kind of genre bending that he's doing, I think, quite intentionally. Um, And of course, he's doing that with all his writing. Is it a poem or is it a short story? Is it a letter or is it a poem? Is it a. He's always pushing the envelope of what. Category it belongs to uh, I mean he writes letters to people and they end up being like these illuminated manuscripts because they have Beautiful little cartoons all over them and then the envelopes have bright yellow colors And I mean he draws on the envelope and so it's like a little Package you know that he mails to somebody. It's not just a letter. It's like an artwork so he's always I mean, then he has books that he publishes where he includes his own paintings in them. So then he also blurs, you know. It's a, it's a, it's a book, but it's also a artistic kind of thing, you know, to appreciate. So, yeah, I think that what's interesting about the dirty old man columns is they're they're, they're not about being a dirty old man. <laughs> I mean, they're about writing and they're about his own kind of poetic sensibility. But that was just the hook to get people to read it, you know, I think basically. I don't know if that's what you're asking, but...
3: (laughs) Was there there anything surprising, I mean, uh, being an expert in his work and and in his life, was there anything editing these columns that you found that was really surprising that you discovered about him from the material here that might not be what people uh, gesture or...
1: Well, I keep getting surprised about how literary he was, i.e. that, again, the cliché about him as being this, you know, primal kind of self, you know, what What did Milton say about Shakespeare? Untutored, you, you probably know this quote, right, of uh, piping primitive wood notes wild. Isn't that what Milton's, Milton, yeah. That that somehow Bukowski was not, liter- that he's anti-literary, non-literary. Or it's just the complete opposite. I mean, he's soaked to his fingertips in, in literature and in, in allusions to other writers. I mean, um, Post Office begins, uh, it began as a mistake, and uh, Céline's vo- Voyage à bout de la nuit begins, uh, ça a commencé uh, ça. It, it began like that. It's a conscious allusion to Céline. And then um, the stuff about Hampson, in, um, in Factotum, he, says he has a um, suitcase that is kind of made out of cardboard and has kind of, Polish on it or something that's sagging in the in the rain, and that's all coming out of Hampson. And so it's it's always um it's always intertextual to use the phony baloney academic word for it. <laughs> I mean he's always kind of weaving and bobbing in literary tradition and making references that but he and, and pulp he goes completely out of control with this because he has just on the first six lines of six pages of pulp, he refers to Thomas Mann, Faulkner, um, Celine, Fonte. And he actually has a character say to one, another character something like, "You know, like, uh, what what should you do on a day like this?" Ask the dust. Now, <laughs> uh, you know, if you know Fonte, then you know he's. Subtly, referring to this name of this great novel, so it's it's always going on. Uh, on. A graduate student would have a lot of fun tracing these allusions in Bukowski. Cause it's constant, I think.
3: Do you think that was a self-conscious way to remove himself from the beats and from the people that that maybe generationally they were trying to uh, sort of saying, you know, my library goes deep, and it's not just. Yeah,
1: I don't think he's being consciously intellectual or trying to show off. I think he just loved literature. In fact, I was talking to Linda about this. I think Henry Miller has a great book called The Books in My Life, you know, where Miller basically shares his love of literature. I think Bukowski was a a poor kid from LA who loved literature. I mean, he just adored Turgenev, you know, he goes on and on about Turgenev. And so he's, I, I think he's, He's he, he's not trying to show off, I guess. He's not trying to be meta-literary or meta-whatever, meta-meta. He's just trying to um, to write what he wants to write, but these other voices kind of appear, I think. But um, yeah, the beats, I don't know about Ginsburg. Uh, does he allude? I mean, of course you got the surreal thing and Howl, I suppose. But, uh, well, Kerouac refers to Surreal a lot too. I mean, he's got a scene when uh, Sal Paradise gets to Fresno and he says something like, Uh, I I see the, the old red box cars and I'm in Saroyan country, you know, and he's always kind of, that's also kind of appearing and, because there's a scene in the human comedy where Homer waves to this black guy in a train and I think Kerouac's referring to that. So he's doing it too, really. Because Soroyan, Soroyan influences Kerouac too. So there's coming to Kerouac and the Beats, and then that long kind of, I saw the best minds of my generation, historical naked that long, that's all coming through Kerouac, through uh, Whitman and then Saroyan, I think. And then Soroyan comes into uh, Bukowski too, but, um, and Celine also influenced, and and Pound also influenced the Beats and and Bukowski. So there's another link, and Dostoevsky. So those are, they're, they're kind of similar, strands there. Be,
3: being an academic who specializes in Bukowski, do you, do you find any resistance in accepting him into the canon, or, or is he? I don't
1: actually? think there's a, I just, the Oxford book of American poetry has just came out a few years ago, edited by John Lehman, and there are six poems by Bukowski in it, you know, and then, um, you know, I think that uh, I've looked at the, the Oxford uh, um, Encyclopedia of American Literature has an article about him. I think he's starting to uh, be recognized by by academics. But, you know, it's a matter of fashion. I mean, you, you know, know, Hemingway was considered the greatest writer when I was a kid, and then suddenly somebody decided Faulkner was. And I don't know who decides these things. I mean, uh, also, uh, Robert Frost was considered the... Uh, nobody talked... It's all Wallace Stevens now. I think it's, it's Harold Bloom at Yale, basically. Harold Bloom... Yes, Harold Bloom decided Wallace Stevens is the greatest American poet now. It, it, there's a whole kind of mafia in academia about... Deciding these things, you know, I, I don't. So,
3: would you like to, to yeah, take some sure. pieces and yeah. um, read them? And then we're going um, to open it for questions. Then uh, we're also going to have a signing. And we also have Linda Bukowski here. Just say hi. Uh, uh, and uh, can talk to her, too, um, after no the reading. Fine.
1: This is a column from 1967 um, from Open City. God knows I am not too hippie, perhaps because I am too much around the hip and I fear fads for like anybody else, I like something that tends to last. Then too, the hippie foundation or diving board or resting place, or whatever you want to call it, does suck in its fair share of fakes, promoters, and generally vicious people trying to overcompensate for some heinous psychological defect. But you have these everywhere, hippie and non-hippie. But like I say, the few people that I know are either a bit on the side of the artistic, the pro-hip, or the understanding hip. So I have been generally getting more than this slice of cake, and it has seemed a bit sweet. But lo, the other day I got the other bit, I think I'd rather eat sweet than shit. Being locked into a large building where 4,000 people work at dull and menial tasks has its compensations, but it has disadvantages too. For instance, you can never be sure who is going to be assigned to work next to you. A bad soul makes for a worse night. Enough bad souls can kill you. He was balding, square-jawed, mannish, with this look of hate frustration on his face. For months, I had sensed that he had wanted to talk to me. Now I was hooked. He was assigned to the place to my left. He complained about the air conditioning and a few other things. Then worked in a question about my age. I told him that I would be 47 in August. He said he was 49. Age is only relative, he said. It doesn't matter if you are 47 or 49. It doesn't make any difference. Mm, I said. Then the speaker screamed out some announcements. All those qualified on the LSM machines report to. I thought they were going to say LSD, he said. Mm, I said. You know, he said, that LSD has put a lot of people in madhouses. Brain damage. Everything puts people in madhouses. What you mean? I mean the LSD brain damage scare is probably an exaggeration percentage wise. Oh no, leading doctors and laboratories and hospitals say so. Okay. We worked away without conversation for a while and I thought I had escaped him. He had one of those easy mellow voices that drowned and warbled in its own conviction, but he began again. Are you for LSD? I don't use it. Don't you think it's a passing fad? Nothing that is against the law ever ceases to exist. What you mean? Forget it. What do you think of the hippies? They don't harm me. Their hair stinks, he said. They don't take baths. They don't work. I don't like to work either. Anything that is unproductive is not good for society. Mm. Some college profs say those kids are our new leaders, that we should listen to them. How the hell can they know anything? They don't have any experience. Experience can dull. With most men, experience is a series of mistakes. The more experience you have, the less you know. You mean to say you are going to listen to what some 13-year-old kid tells you? I listen to everything. But they aren't mature. They aren't mature, don't you see? That's why they're hippies. Suppose they got jobs. Suppose they went into industry, went to work turning bolts for General Motors. Wouldn't they still be immature? No, because they'd be working, he said. Furthermore, I think a lot of these kids are going to be sorry they didn't go to the war. By the way, that's the war in Vietnam. <laughs> uh, it's going to be an experience they wish they hadn't missed. They're going to regret it later on. Mm. There fell again the peaceful silence. Then he said, you're not a hippie, are you? I'm working, damn it, and I told you I was 47. The beard doesn't mean anything then, does it? Sure it does. It means at the moment I feel better wearing a beard than I do the other way. Maybe next week it'll be different. Silence, silence. Then he switched his stool, turned his back to me as much as possible and continued working. I got up and walked to the (coughs) hallway and stuck my head out the window for fresh air. The guy was my father all over again. Responsibility, society, country, duty, maturity, all the dull-sounding hard words. But why were they in such agony? Why did they hate so much? It seemed simply they were very much afraid that somebody else was having a damn good time or was not unhappy most of the time. It seemed that they wanted everybody to carry the same same damn heavy rock they were carrying. It wasn't enough that I was working beside him like an idiot. It wasn't enough for him that I was wasting the few good hours left in my life. No, he had also wanted to share his own mind soul, to sniff his dirty stockings, to chew on his angers and hates with him. I was not paid for that. The fucker and that's what killed you on the job not the actual physical work but being closed in with the dead I got on back to my school stool he had his back turned to me poor poor fellow I had let him down he'd have to look elsewhere and I was white and he was white and most of them were black where are you gonna find a decent white man in a place like this I could sense him thinking I suppose he would have gotten around to the negro question if I had sent out the proper raise. I had been spared that. His back was to me. His back was broad, American, and hard, but I couldn't see his face and he didn't speak anymore. What had hurt him the worst was that I had neither agreed with or argued with him. His back was to me. The remainder of the night was peaceful and almost kind. I think some of these things are newly relevant with the appearance of the Tea Party <clears throat> and other um, anti-philosophical um, groups in America. And <clears throat> this and this essay is also interesting because it reveals uh, Bukowski's attitude about the hippies and the counterculture. He's often seen as being anti-youth culture because presumably, you know, he drank instead of, you know, and he supposedly listened to Bach instead of, you know, Joni Mitchell, and so people always make these kind of categories that Bukowski's here and the counterculture is here, but here you can see his sympathy for the, the hippies, although he, in other places, of course, he also criticizes them because I think he sees, thinks that they, uh, well, sometimes he thinks they were too pampered and, uh, you know, didn't, didn't have to work like he did and, you know, that sort of thing, but um, Okay, I thought I'd read a bit from um, one of the columns that he submitted in 1982 uh, to a little rag called Smoke Signals, which is a little mimeographed, I think it it was from LA. But the point is that he was, even when he got famous, still submitting to these kind of little publications. And also that in 1982 he was still writing the uh, Dirty Old Man column. It's broken up into into um, five sections, and I'll just read a couple. It, it begins like this. <clears throat> Maybe I should give a minute of. Um, Introduction here. Norman, Norman Mailer is another figure that kind of circles around Bukowski, and uh, Linda can tell you more about this. But I know that he met Mailer, um, I believe, in the 80s when Barfly was being made. But uh, he writes often about Mailer, and. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you remember this, but Mailer was an advocate of a guy named Jack Abbott who had committed a murder. And uh, through Mailer's ministrations, he was let out of prison. And then he proceeded to kill somebody again. And um, of course, there's this French tradition, you know, about Sartre and Genet, and, uh, you know, when literary people in France uh, get into trouble who are criminals then all the literary people come to their defense. And something like that happened with Abbott because Abbott had written a book, right? So Mailer. So this is, that's the background of this opening kind of witty part. Well, so Mailer and his cohorts got him out. He was a writer, there was a book, I haven't read it. All I know is that I read in the papers, uh, that I read it in the papers while I'm crapping. So as you know, the writer put the knife to a waiter, wasting him as the boys in my time used to say, which was not good for Mailer either. All right, here we have two writers and a waiter. Now we have two writers, which brings something to this ribbon which is spinning now before me. A man can be a good writer without being Uh, good at anything else. In fact he can be pretty bad at everything else and usually is. Of course there are people who are pretty bad at everything else and they can't write either. I might get to reading In the Belly of the Beast one of these days. I never could get through The Naked and the Dead, feeling it was too close of a feed off on Hemingway. But Ann Mailer is an excellent journalist and while not fit to sit on a parole board, he did what he felt he had to do. So did the other writer. And uh, then the second section is about the racetrack, and then he talks a bit about the uh, times he spent in the LA Public Library. And then that's section four. In my old starvation days prowling the libraries, I did a great deal of reading. Mostly in the old L.A. Public Library. After sitting in Pershing Square and listening to the boys argue about whether there was God or not, I would walk over to the library. After eating up several rooms of books, I found myself in the philosophy room. Those boys had some style. They talked about what mattered, or seemed to, or should. One of the things they talked about was the need for solitude. That made sense to me. That need, I mean. When I was sitting at the table reading a book and somebody came to my table and sat down, it disturbed me. Why sit near me? And when I looked up and saw the other empty tables, I felt really repulsed. I know that I'm supposed to love my fellow man, but I don't. I don't hate him. I often dislike him. I just don't want him about. I feel better alone. I love solitude, I still do. I grow when I am alone. People diminish me, especially men. They seem quite unoriginal. Women at times are useful. Also, they are funny and tragic, but too many continued hours and days with them leads to madness. There must be others like me. I always seem to be living with a woman, and one acts differently than out of courtesy. But in between my times of living alone, I had my little delicacies. I'd simply take the phone off the hook, disconnect the doorbell, pull down all the shades and go to bed for three or four days and nights, just arising now and then to do my toilet, drink water, and nibble on a bit of food. These times were precious to me, holy. I was like a battery getting a recharge off of myself in the absence of humanity. I've never been lonely. I've never, I've been confused, depressed, insane, suicidal, but never lonely in the sense that some person or persons might solve something for me. I never had a television set until I was 52 years old, and I only saw one movie in 20 years, The Lost Weekend. I went to check it out for accuracy. Being alone has always been very necessary to me. At one time, I was on one of my hot winning streaks at the racetracks. The money just came to me. A certain basic, simple system was working for me. The horses moved south, and I walked off off the job and followed them down to Del Mar. It was a good life. I'd win every day at the track. I had a routine. After the track, I'd stop off at the liquor store for my fifth of whiskey and my six pack of beer and the cigars, and I'd get back in the car and cruise the coast for a new motel room. I liked a different one each night. I'd find a motel, park my stuff, shower, change clothes, and then get my ass back into the car and cruise the coast again, this time for an eating place. And what I would look for was an eating place without many people in it, the worst, I know. I didn't like crowds, so I always found one. went in and ordered. So this particular night I found a place, went in, sat at the counter, ordered porterhouse steak with french fries, beer, everything was fine, the waitress didn't bother me, I sucked at my beer, I ordered another, then the meal came, god damn it looked good, I began, I had a few fine bites, then the door opened and this fellow came in, there were 14 empty stools at the counter, this fellow sat down next to me, hi Doris, how's it going, okay Eddie, how you doing, Fine. What all you have, Eddie? Oh, just a cup of coffee, I guess. Doris brought Eddie his coffee. I think the fuel pump of my car is going out. Always some damn thing, huh, Eddie? Yeah, now my wife needs new plates, Doris. You mean houseware? I mean mouthware. Oh, Eddie, ha ha. Well, Eddie, when it rains, it pours. I picked up my plate, my beer, my fork, my knife, my spoon, my napkin, my ass, and moved it all the way over to a far booth. I sat down and began again. As I did, I watched Eddie and Doris. They were whispering, Then Doris looked at me. Is everything all right, sir? Now it is, I said. Nothing diminishes diminishes me like the crowd. Say like on New Year's night at midnight. Everybody is screaming, joyous, celebrating. I feel completely denuded, foolish, unhappy. If I am in a room full of them, if I am alone, it's better. New Year's Eve is like any other eve to me. I drink. Or standing with a group, being sworn into a government job, I feel like I'm eating shit stew, facing the flag, pledging allegiance, I always get out of that, I move my lips, but in the sound of all the voices I don't have to say any words and nobody knows. There are certain privacies that are joyous and necessary. I maintain that I have certain inherent rights to oneness and that I am my own keeper. I am not cranky about this, just a touch fucking rigid. It creates a comedy of my own that I can laugh at though soundlessly. Some refuse to believe I have certain beliefs. There was this lady I lived with for a year or so, a live one, A bit offed by shock therapy, but better than than most, she said in her cups one night. Ah, shit, I've read your stuff. I've heard you talk. You're such a loner. You're such a fucking recluse. How come, then, do you write your stuff and send it out? "It It helps you for all that swill you jam down your throat. You mean drink? Yes. That's no answer you're copying out. She was right, of course. I remember reading in the papers about this guy they found in the park. He'd been living in a cave there and coming out at night and living off the picnic scraps. They caught him and took him off. And when I read that, I thought, there, but the grace of the typewriter goes me. The keys are my solitude, my luck, my picnic scraps. Hate me, but buy my books. And read the old philosophers on solitude. And don't write me. Phone me. Or write like me. And if you ever see me anywhere, it isn't me. Forget it. I thought I'd just read briefly uh, from the uh, afterward. I, I talk a bit about the fact that Bukowski was followed by the FBI in 1968. And um, I ordered the FBI file from Washington and I studied it. And it was pretty revelatory because I'm pretty clear. And again, Linda can help me if I'm off about this. My sense is that the reason Bukowski left the post office was largely because. Uh, the FBI had found out about these columns, and they were starting to question him about it. And he knew knew that he was probably about to be fired, not because of the supposed absenteeism at the post office, but because of what amounts to a violation of his First Amendment rights. I mean, uh, the fact that he's a postal worker and he's writing these columns... Uh, which apparently the U.S. government at that point found unbecoming of a postal worker, sounds not too far from what, you know, Stalin did to Mandelstam and uh, to Shostakovich, right? I mean, and so I think what emerges is a kind of political hit. I mean, that he was basically um, going to be fired for what he wrote. And so I think that's a bit of a, it's been suggested in other biographies, but I'm, Pretty clear, I'm pretty sure that's what happened. Although, again, one can't prove all this because I'm sure the post office then could come and say something like, we were really gonna fire you because you weren't uh, you weren't doing your job. But uh, I'll just read you a bit of some of the FBI file here. Um, okay, I just have a bit of an introduction. By this time, Bukowski, Bukowski has a wonderful letter he wrote to NOLA because these uh, columns were submitted to the LA Free Press to the um, uh, Open City and then to NOLA. And NOLA was, uh, it's named after William Burroughs Nova Express. So it was called NOLA Express, but N-O-L-A meaning New Orleans. Um, And it was an underground newspaper. And Bukowski was very fond of it. And it was edited by a woman named Darlene Fife and her husband Robert Head. And they were also being... Uh, looked into by the FBI at this time. This is 1968, 69. So Bukowski wrote them a letter and he said, uh, this is in 1970. You are the liveliest thing happening in the US right now. You've always laid your guts right on the line without laying on this juvenile hippie romanticism which destroys papers like the Berkeley tribe. See, there's the other side of his view of the hippies. Don't put me down as anti-hip or yip or whatever, but somehow building those paper heroes has destroyed the force of what really needs to be said. Each issue of NOLA is a thing I read over and over. It's magic. I wrote the Evergreen, that's the Evergreen Review, which was edited by Barney Rossett and that published Burroughs and and, and Beckett and, it was actually a big breakthrough for Bukowski to appear in that magazine because it was an international avant-garde uh, publication that published various distinguished writers. But but he's saying here, he's writing Evergreen about NOLA and he says, I hope they can break the back of whatever is trying to break you. Your courage is the quietest poem of all. You make me very good, feel very good when very few things do. By this time, Bukowski had experienced difficulties of his own with the, quote, authorities. In 1968, the FBI began to investigate him. He would eventually leave the post office, not only because John Martin offered him a monthly stipend to quit and write full-time, but most likely because he was about to be dismissed, not for his supposed absenteeism, but due to his work for Open City, a clear violation of his right to free speech. Bukowski's FBI file indicates that they began to investigate his, quote, common-law wife, unquote this was clearly Francis Smith although her name has been redacted from the file if you get the, again you can send off to Washington and they'll send you the file but uh, her name has been inked out but if you look carefully you can see that it's Francis I mean it's obviously Francis Smith Frances Smith was his, uh, was the woman he lived with in the 60s w- who was the mother of Marina. <clears throat> and she had gone to Smith College and she was a sort of intellectual and also at- active in left-wing causes. So the FBI is now trying to finger her basically. Um, she has, quote, been reported to have attended a number of communist party meetings in the LA area, unquote. The, uh, the file goes on to say that, quote, one Uh, that one Charles Bukowski poet was the author of an article appearing on page 43 of the June 1963 issue of Mainstream. Uh, And this essay which Bukowski had submitted about the little magazines contains some extat language with the, which the editor Felix Singer uh, censored. The report continues, quote, the March 1968 edition of the Underground Digest, the best of the Underground Press, volume one, published by the Underground Communications Incorporated, PO Box 211, Village Station, New York, New York 10014, telephone WI 76900, contains an article by Charles Bukowski on pages 76 to 79 entitled, Notes of a Dirty Old Man. Page 79 indicates the writer's name may be Henry Charles Bukowski. The publication indicates at the end of the article on page 79 of the article, may have originally appeared in Open City, uh, 5420 Carlton Way, Los Angeles, California, 900275 dollars per year. Single copies of the article Notes of a Dirty Old Man together with a copy of the masthead of the Underground Digest are enclosed for New York and LA under obscene cover. New York and LA should make discrete efforts to resolve whether this article and the item appearing in the June 1963 issue of Mainstream were written by the employee. If employee's authorship is indicated, copies of the articles should be designated as exhibits." It is clear the FBI was conducting surveillance in the attempt to fathom Bukowski's political commitments during this time, as well as to build a dossier against him in which, this, in which his, quote, obscene writings for the underground press would be cited as evidence. And then the FBI has four exhibits. Uh, one is an essay he wrote about Leroy Jones, who is a black writer, which is completely without any political problem at all. It's simply his kind of commentary on Leroy Jones. The second is about a sexual encounter with a woman with red hair, which is in this book, which is really hot and really fun, (laughs) and there's absolutely nothing wrong with it or obscene. Uh, uh, Number C, which is a column uh, which is collected in erections uh, called Great Poets Die in Steaming Pots of Shit, and D, a 1968 column uh, which begins, when Henry's mother died, it wasn't bad, and that's also collected in the original book of uh, um, uh, Daring Young Man. So these four things were, again, a, a part of a effort to start to indict him on these rounds of obscene writing. So I kind of try to trace that in this book as well to, to, to show what was going on. And again, I think it's quite shameful because, um, you know, We're supposed to be the land of the free and home of the brave and freedom and all that bullshit. And uh, uh, what's puzzling is what the FBI could have thought because actually Bukowski has a wonderful essay called uh, Should We Burn Uncle Sam's Ass, which I included in uh, portions from a Weinstein notebook. And if if the FBI had read that essay, they'd find that he was quite... um, modulated or moderated about his political stance. He basically says, uh, because this is right after the students burned the bank in Isla Vista, I don't know if you guys know about this, but there was, in Santa Barbara, uh, students burned down the Bank of America. And Bukowski writes this uh, paper right, uh, this article right afterwards, and he basically says, um, you know, I'm ready for a revolution too. I think we need to change America, but I want you young kids to tell me what you're gonna put in the place of what we've got, you know, he sort of says, um, if I'm going to put my, myself on the line against the National Guard with their, with their rifles, I want to know what's your program. So in a way, he, he sides with the revolution and the, with the young people, but he's, he's not quite ready to join the barricades because he, he's a bit suspicious, okay, because he, he's not, Partially, he's not quite sure the peace and love program is going to work out. Having read Celine, right, and and Dostoevsky, and having that dark European aspect to his psyche, but um, it, maybe it's silly for me to even say this, because it's clear that you know J. Edgar Hoover is not was not a literary person or intellectual, but uh, they they had the wrong guy, is what I'm trying to say, and it's. It, it seems to me after reading this, maybe I'd be curious what other people think about it, that that's what was going on. It was out the wrong guy. Yeah. <laughs> right.
3: It's kind of quaint that the government will pursue somebody for they're right. I mean, they should shut down Facebook
1: <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's very tame what he wrote for 1967 compared to today. It's very tame. So, But, but anyway.
3: Yes, any questions? Yes. Yeah, how did you get involved
1: with the council? Um. Actually, I, I I was born in L.A. in 1953, and I, in 1972, KCET showed the uh, the documentary about Bukowski by Taylor Hackford, and uh, I think it was 72 or 73. So I was like, 21 years old, and I was I was studying Greek at, at UCLA, and I was studying classical piano and reading Dostoevsky, and I just <laughs> saw this guy and I'm like, Jesus Christ, we got a genius here in L.A. You know, I mean, I was just completely overwhelmed. I thought. Uh, And so I started reading him, and then I went to grad school in Texas, and I started reading him more. And uh, then I wrote my first book on Soroyan and I think, as I said, there's so many connections. I think Soroyan was Armenian, you know, ethnic, suffered a great deal, poor, literary to the fingertips, uh, and and sort of uh, trying to invent this new um, American prose style. And all the same is true for Bukowski, you know, but here it's German, poor, LA instead of Fresno, uh, literary coming from a very difficult background and then finding his way into literature as a kind of salvation, the kind of, um, you know, a way to, to make his life have meaning. And so, yeah, so I think I kept reading him through the 70s and 80s. And then by the time the 90s came along, I started realizing that there was this uh, Whole uh, fund of unpublished or uncollected material by him. And I started collecting it at, at first, sort of in a desultory way. But I went on eBay and I'd buy, you know, a magazine or I'd, I'd send off to a library or I, I started corresponding with the University of Arizona, which has a big Bukowski collection, and then um, UC Santa Barbara, and they would send me xeroxes. And then I, I started. I, I kind of got possessed by a mania. I started. Know, making all these files, and I thought, this stuff is good, why isn't it published? So that's that's how that came about, is this kind of liking his stuff so much and loving it, and then wanting to see more of it in print. So that's kind of my history with him. Yeah, I kind of
4: found that some of the, the newer books that came out before the rest of the, other, the recent uh, writings of Bukowski really uh, kind of brought me back. Uh, to, have to direct him when I was in, uh, maybe 15 or so years ago, in my early teens, and I had a certain opinion of uh, think of how he wrote and what he wrote about. There was um, I found some of the new releases really, uh, like you said, it, it, the literary aspect of a higher quality than what made it in the earlier books. And I don't know why if There's a reason for that.
1: I mean the later books of poetry?
4: Yeah, the later collections of some of his writings and some of a lot not interesting shorts in Is there, because he's thought of as being maybe the dirty old man or something, that was some attempt to kind of uh, release things in that aspect at all, in some of his earlier work? They, they
1: you mean did people try to keep publishing? Publishers,
4: or was there they pigeonhole a writer in a certain sense,
1: and there was i I'm a bit, are you talking about reading his later poetry or his later prose? His
4: later, his latest collected items that have come out. the recent.
1: But you mean prose or poetry? The prose. OK. Uh, well, his prose has always been more edgy, and obviously, uh, I mean, you know, he has he has a famous story about a rape of a child called The Fiend. He's got stories about men making love to glass vases or high heel shoes or, I mean, he's, in fact, I have this in the introduction here about, there, my grandfather, I remember when I was a kid, had Wilhelm Steckel, Psychopathia Sexualis, you know, this old Freudian, you know, study of sexual, paraf- what you call paraphilia, you know? and uh, um, who's the other guy, Steckel and Kraft Ebbing. You know, these, uh, and when you go through the columns, it's actually like an encyclopedia. He's got every sexual fetish that there is in existence. And it it does make you wonder, what's he up to with all that, you know? And I think, I think, I mean, this can get very complicated, but um, first of all, he was trying to get an audience and he knew it would shock people. But I, I, I think he was interested in the sexual arena as this very intimate place where people are finally completely naked with each other. And I think that psychologically he was so wounded by this early childhood trauma that for him to open up to love somebody, to have sexual intimacy, it was very frightening for him. I mean if you read a book like Women, I mean what's funny about Bukaski really about sex is that if you read women, you see how completely terrified he is of, of of love, you know, of sexual activity of any kind, and and it's all kind of this wonderful mad comedy because he's 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 scared about intimacy, basically. I think so. I think all this stuff is kind of a constant circling around that question of, you know, uh, you know, I like solitude, but you know, I also I want to love, you know, I want to be loved, and. Uh, I think uh, it's no accident that he loved E.E. E. Cummings, I think so much because he's the great American love poet, you know, <laughs> or heart Crane, you know. And so I entered the broken world, right, to trace the visionary company of love, you know. It's high romanticism. So he's not the dirty old man. He's the, um, he's the, he's the, the philosopher seeking transcendence, you know, and sex just becomes the kind of, comedy where that takes place, but it, he liked Rabelais, he liked Boccaccio. I, I think you have to take him seriously when he says, read Boccaccio, you know, the Decameron, because the, the women is 104 chapters, I think, or not, I forget now, and the Decameron is about the same number of chapters, and they're brief episodic things, right, with each thing having a different sexual or erotic or romantic. Right, and it's funny it's, it's, and he, he says it He says uh, Boccaccio shows how ridiculous sex is and that's a very different way to read women it, it's, a, it's a comedy I think but, but, but what's brilliant about it is because I've just been writing about it I'm fresh, it's fresh in my mind but it's also very it's also full of pathos there's a lot of kind of terror in the book too and the way he's able to balance that terror with uh, this, this absurd comedy is brilliant. It's very hard to write about love and sex and to do both things at the same time and try it. Try to, try to write about a sexual romantic love relationship you've had either comically or tragically or one or the other, but to do both at the same time. That's what he accomplishes in women. It's very hard, when you put the book down, it's really hard to tell. In fact, I'm still not sure I wake up and think, is this a comedy or a tragedy? You know? It's just right in between, it's perfectly done. It's a great last scene because he's he's, just—he's—he's trying to give up this merry-go-round of one woman after another, right? And the phone rings, and this girl named Rochelle calls, and she says, "I'm a hot chick" or something. And and he just—he says, "I put down the phone," and something like, "At least this time, you know, I was able." And then he says, "I have a." a bottle of white wine chilling in the refrigerator. I have a bottle of vitamin E, 400 I individual units. My cat comes up, he brushes on my leg, he knows I'm a good guy. I take out a can of sun-kissed tuna and give it to him. Sun-kissed white tuna, seven ounces, period, end of novel. It's wonderful, because <laughs> the cat becomes this duffelganger, you know, it's the, it's, he's a tomcat. And, but it's a beautiful, you know, it's a, it's a perfect ending because it's all there, right? He's, he's, he's trying to give up on the sex thing with girls and women and the cat kind of knows he's really a good guy and he feeds the cat and he's, he's concentrating on how many individual units in the, in the vitamin E tablet and how much the can weighs. And this is almost to me a way he's trying to anchor himself you know, in the facts of everyday life so he doesn't fly off again on another romance, you know? It's like I'm, I'm getting to something solid now, right? I'm gonna end the book with things that I can touch and will hold me back. So it's a, uh, I forgot what you asked, but, <laughs> but. Yes? I have two questions. One, I don't know which one I should start with, so I'm
2: just gonna ask them both. Um, one is I heard that that Kalski may have used to um, I had some drinks over at the drawing room, which was on Hillhurst. I heard that. I and mean, I'm sure it's yeah, a little bit more than a little bit of a couple of things. Linda? The drawing room? The and drawing room? Hill Hurst? Bar- um, the- <laughs> 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 and then um, also my other question was, you spoke about Henry Miller a little bit, and I read The McCalyston first and I totally, you know, love his style. And when I started I read Henry Miller and I definitely fell in love like with his style. They definitely differently. <coughs> I was wondering how
1: I related maybe nothing. Nothing. Actually, I didn't mention Miller, but I should have. I don't think he was influenced by Miller at all, literarily. But you know the story that he mentions him frequently, and he always puts him down for when he goes off into his what he calls metaphysical, you know, uh, the moon and Pisces. And I mean, he, he's very kind of rigid and brutal. But and then on the Bukowski tapes, he's quite, he's quite. Uh, in your face and vulgar about it all. But he says, yeah, I like Miller when he says, John has a big dick and Mary has a tight cunt. And that, I like Miller when he's like that, but then when he goes off on Pisces and, and you know. So I, I think he was being serious that uh, he, he wanted fiction to remain straight in the bedrock everyday life. And then when it gets too philosophical, he didn't like it, but, but they were both German Americans. And, and Miller also had a, a really harsh mother And there's actually a deathbed scene where Miller says his mother was dying and she sort of looks up at him and they they never really had any rapprochement even on his deathbed. And then Bukowski has an interesting poem called Cancer about his mother where he's coming to her on her deathbed. And it's very similar. It's like, I think in the poem, the mother, Bukowski's mother says something like, you know, you were right. Your father really was a terrible man. And there's this moment where, but then he, there's no kind of, yeah, the, 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 and I think that he, and again, Linda knows more about this than I do, but my sense is that he resented the fact that his mother didn't intervene when his father was beating him. Mm-hmm. And his mother just went along with it. And so, and I'm sure a psychoanalyst would say this has a lot to do with why mm-hmm. Miller and uh, Bukowski both had such issues with women, you know? I mean, that, that the mother figure was, Either forbidding, cold, or not present emotionally, you know. So that's hard on a boy because a boy has to have, you know, some sort of trust in in the female, <laughs> and when that's broken, it's 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 hard to make that up.
3: He has some nice things to say about Henry Miller somewhere that that early column where he's talking about that book that he's together. Oh yes, together. yes.
1: In fact, uh, again, uh, Linda has some beautiful drawings of Buca- of Miller because right after. Miller, uh, right after, Bukowski has a column where he interviews the webs, you know, the people who did uh, It Catches My Heart in Its Hands and a Crucifix in a Death Hand. And right after they published those two books, they did a, a book of, two books by Henry Miller. And in this, essay, in this interview, Bukowski goes to Tucson and actually interviews the webs and asks them about how they produce their famous Lujan Press books in New Orleans and, kind of shows a lot of interest in the actual process of putting together the book. and uh, But yeah, they published uh, Miller right after that.
3: Linda, she was asking about uh, watering holes in, in the area, about bars in the area that, that he liked. Do you, do you
0: know? Um, no. Yeah. Yeah. When I met him, he really wasn't going to a lot of bars. Sort of done that. The only time we did was when we were far of doing research for Barfly. He was looking around at different bars in different areas of L.A. to see if there were any of the same ones still standing or new ones that were sort of relevant to, reminded him of those earlier places. We used to spend a couple of evenings at the Dresden <laughs> This was like 75 years ago. But there was a piano guy at the
3: bar. It's still there. <laughs> what are they called? The couple, Marty and Elaine. Marty and Elaine. Yeah.
0: <laughs> 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 but they didn't do much. They'd sort of just be coming in. Would be there like early evening, and nobody was there much. And uh, they'd sometimes come in and do the little rehearsing. But we went into the other
1: room. <laughs> <laughs> Is that before or after he so wrote we that? <laughs> because we
0: love Lisbon, Frank, and we'd go there. And film. <laughs> sat sit at the bar for a little while before we went to the other room, and sat in a nice red booth. We knew the bartenders and they became good friends. over the is good bar. But he'd done all the sort of dive bars way earlier before me. And then when we moved to San Pedro he he wasn't interested in it sort of like he finished it out, like with women. He needed to do that experience, those experiences. He was a young person when most young people have those experiences, and when he sort of finished that out, and uh, he didn't have any real interest in going out there anymore, in that scene. And the same way with drinking at bars, just sort of finished it out. You go through phases in life, and he was making some big changes and moving uh, to places he'd never been before.
3: Did he pick up any other to
0: Just the track. Well, mainly the track. And there was a one game on the early Mac that he got a computer finally uh-huh. and He's still he's still there. It still works. The original, what is it called? The Mac. The little Mac two. Yeah, that one. <laughs> and there was no internet, nothing. He never used any of that. that he just used it as a word processor, basically. But there was a game that came with it. And uh, he loved that game it was just it was sort of like Go. The Japanese game mm-hmm. go with black black and white on a grid and the black just has to take over the in the game, take over the board, or the black, one of the other has to win. He became a master. And it was I mean there were levels and he became incredible at in that game. So that's, that's You still have you still have that mic? Yeah. It's in I have his typing room exactly like it was. I haven't changed it. Nothing. I dust about twice a year, but um, I, I, I go in there once a night, you know, to sort of peek in. in. It still smells, my you know, okay. thing. Uh-huh. It's got its, I don't mean like smelling and smelling the smell, but sort of, it does. I mean, I can go up there and really smell, smell them sometimes <laughs> yes. in a good way.
3: And <laughs> <laughs> it has to to the table. Uh, thanks so much. Uh, Thank you.